I see y'all already started the clock. <laughs> it's, this multi-ethnic thing is good for us as, as African-American preachers, right? Because it's kind of cruel to put a chocolate preacher on the clock. <laughs> Let us pray. Father God, in the name of Jesus, we thank you, Lord, for your grace. I pray that you work through my, through my mouth, oh Lord. Uh, let me just be a mouthpiece. I thank you for what you've, what you've spoken in my heart and what you've led this week to speak. God, I pray that somewhere in this, in this sanctuary, there's a heart that needs to hear what needs to be said today. Father God, I pray for courage in, in saying the truth and nothing but the truth, oh Lord. Uh, may you guide my words this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Yeah, in a multi-ethnic church, you give some, you, you take some, right? So I have to stay on the clock, and I will get you out as quickly as I can. In the African-American tradition of preaching, an African tradition of preaching, you know that it is more dialogical than just quietness. So if you hear something this morning, I'm just reminding you, if you need to say an amen, please do, okay? Amen. If, if, I, if, if you feel my energy getting low, say amen, right? Don't let Antoinette be the only one to say amen. Well, good morning. I'm glad to be here with you this morning. I'm glad to be in front of you, glad to be the one sharing the word this morning. Uh, we're dealing with a passage this morning I Ray just read that is very familiar to most of us. If you grew up in the church or you have been reading your Bible, you know this passage. It's an Old Testament passage, right? It shows up what I like to, it shows us what I like to call the coming attractions. It's a foreshadowing, meaning it's a warning or an indication of the future, something that is coming. I like to go to the movies. I don't go to the movies often anymore, but when I do, I like to get to the movies really early so I can see what's coming, right? I know the movie, but you want to know what's coming next spring. You want to know what's coming next fall, right? The, the, the coming attractions. I see the OT sometimes in that way, from Genesis to Malachi, the Old Testament. The Messiah is the main character, but we get little glimpses of him. We get little, little, little vignettes, little things that say, hey, there's a bigger story, there's a bigger person that's coming, and we need to be ready for that, right? Predictions and shadows and things we see. But all of the, all of the characters in the Old Testament somehow fall short of what Jesus is. This morning, I would like to say this sermon, as I was preparing it this week, I was like, man, there's so much in this little passage. I could preach 45 sermons on this one, right? I know I've called my sermons sometimes, I've called them watermelon sermon, but this one truly is a watermelon sermon, meaning, not when you bite into a watermelon and it starts to drip all over your arm, it's, not, it's just not enough. You can't get it all in. I'm going to try to get it all in. We're going to try to get all the juices out of this sermon this morning. We're going to call this one a watermelon sermon, and we're going to keep going. Amen. I like, to, I like to see, like I said, I like to see the previews when I go to the movies. When I read the Old Testament, I don't see it as a part one of a movie. I see it as God is doing something greater and is coming. When I read the story, I don't know if you read the story of Cain and Abel, and you see Abel gets killed and his innocent blood is on the ground. You think, is that just for that period of time, or is that pointing to someone who's innocent and his blood is going to be spilled? When I think of the story of Joseph, which was my favorite story that Mr. Montgomery read to me when I was in the third grade, uh, he says, when you see the story of Joseph, you see someone who was betrayed by people he loved, yet he ends up sitting at the right hand of the king, right? 
when you see those stories, you start to see Jesus just a little bit more in the Old Testament. When you look at Job, right? Job is, a, Job is an innocent sufferer. He goes through all of this, right? God, 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 God. He goes through all these tests and trials, and he's an innocent sufferer. That's a, that's a, that's a prediction of something to come. Genesis chapter 22 is where we are, right? Ray read from 1 to 19, but I will try to keep my scope between 1 to 14. We're going to answer three questions this morning, actually four. If you're a note-taking person, here are your questions I'm going to answer this morning. What kind of God tests and tempts his people into sacrificing their own children? Some of you have that question, right? When you read that story, you think, man, God is, I don't know about this, God. I need your help. What kind of God would tell you to kill your own child? And what kind of faith does it take to that point where you absolutely trust God to do that? Right? What kind of faith is that? And the last question is, where is Christ in this entire situation? Where is Jesus Christ in this situation? Are you ready with me? Are you ready? This story of Abraham and Isaac is one of the few stories that is actually in the Bible, is in the Torah, and is in the Quran, right? All three major faiths acknowledge this story as having happened. In the Jewish tradition, in the Jewish tradition, this, is, this story is remembered when they celebrate Rosh Hashanah, right? Muslims believe that it was an act of obedience on Abraham's part to sacrifice his son. We disagree with Muslims. I disagree with Muslims because they, they, we argue that it was a different son. Which son was it? I'll get to that in a few minutes. Christians, we believe that this story is a foreshadowing. It's a, it's a, it's a, it's a prediction of Jesus Christ who is coming. This morning, I will give you evidence to let you know that the view that you support as a Christian is absolutely correct. Amen? Amen. I will start with the faith portion of the story, and then we will deal with why would God show somebody to sacrifice their own son. So let's start with the faith. You read the story, immediately you think, yes, this is a story of faith. This is, this is, this is a story of great faith. Because Abraham is, is listed in the book of Hebrews in the hall of fame of faith, and you can read people who had great faith, and you read over and over. This story is a great, a great story of faith, right? We see in verse 2 it says, God says to Abraham, take your son your only son, Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains that I shall tell you. Abraham, by faith, got this son. You know the story, right? Abraham is 99 years old. His wife is 90 years old. No chance they're going to have children. But God comes to him and said, you are going to have a son, right? The phrasing here, when God, when, when God says, your son, your only son, whom you love is very clear. Here's the problem. This is not Abraham's only son. You know this, if you read your Bible, you know that Abraham had had a child with his maidservant, Hagar. So what is this saying here when it says, your only son? The only there, the phrase only there, is really, can, when you look at the Hebrew, it can be interpreted, your unique son. Right? Abraham and Sarah were promised a son, that the promise of God would come through, not Hagar's son, Ishmael. 
God is the ultimate provider. The uniqueness of Isaac's birth comes from, the onlyness of Isaac comes from the age of his parents, the scientific improbability of what was happening, right? A 90-year-old woman is not supposed to have children. It leads us to make the connection that God is a provider, and he's a unique provider. He will provide, and he has provided. There are a few things more common. You know this, a few things in the, in the ancient world more, less common than a man having a child with his maidservant, right? But for a 90-year-old to have a child is scientifically impossible, to say the least. When Abraham had a son by Hagar, his name was not Abraham. His name was Abram. God had not, at that point, made a, a covenant with him to promise him his son, to promise that he will, he, will, he will have generations of people that come through his nation. God had not firmed up his co commitment to him, the covenant. After the promise, God changes his name to Abraham, and then the promise is fulfilled through Isaac. I had a friend in seminary uh, who was a, a Ph.D. in Islamic studies and theology. And one of the things he would say, he would say, he'd say this story is the gateway. Is, this is where he became a Christian, through this story. And someone explained this story to him, right? He said, nah, he, he was in school. He's one of the smartest people I know. He had a Ph.D. In Muslim studies, and he came to seminary to get another PhD in Christian studies. But not just academically, he believed in Jesus Christ because of this story. And the conversation, his conversations always came back to Isaac and Ishmael. That begs the connection. Where else have we read of a scientifically unique birth through which God provides a sacrifice for sins, through which He created a new nation of people? Where else in the Bible have you seen a scientifically impossible birth happen? Where else? I need somebody to tell me where else. A scientifically impossible birth. God is a great provider, and he has provided. He will continue to provide. He will always provide. question then is, what is Abraham thinking in his faith? When God comes to him, say, hey, listen, I want you to sacrifice your son, your only son. The one that I told you you would have, the one that I told you you would have nations through, you need to sacrifice him. What's God doing? Abraham is probably thinking, this is, this is the son you promised me. The son through whom I'm supposed to be great. My promise to be the father of many nations is only going to come through this boy. This is the one you promised me. Well... Abraham has reason to believe because God had, he had trusted God before and God had come through. God told him to leave his home and he didn't know where he was going, but he left and God took care of him, right? This is such a, such a ridiculous, if you think about it, such a ridiculous command from God. It's not loving at all. You want me to kill my son, my only son? Imagine Abraham the night before, Right? He's walked, with, his, he's walked with, the, with the three boys, and then he tells the rest of them to say, stay here, me and the boy are going to go on. That night, what is he thinking? A.W. Tozer, a great American preacher of the 20th century, said this, God let the suffering old man go through with this up to the point where he knew that there would be no retreat. Then he forbade him to lay a hand on the boy. To, wondering, to the wondering patriarch, now he says in effect, it's all right, Abraham. 
I never intended that you should actually slay the lad. I only wanted to remove him from the temple of your heart, that I might reign unchallenged there. His only son. If you're a father or mother in here today, you know your children. If you only have one, that person, in my culture, we call it your, your handbag, right? My mother, I was my mother's handbag because I, I was the youngest one, so I'm always with her. For him to have one child, and God says, I want you to sacrifice this one person. What is he saying? What is Tozer saying here is that sometimes our children can occupy spaces in our heart that is only meant for God to be. Imagine Abraham wrestling. God, will you provide? Can I trust you? Is there another way to do this? Let me remind you that 1,500 years later, in the garden, in Luke chapter 22, the night before Jesus was sacrificed, praying, blood dripping from his face, his body in extreme stress, he's God's only son. He's about to die to take on the sins. He's about to be the sacrificial lamb. Do you see the connection? Jesus says, Please, Lord, take this cup away from me. Yet not my will, but your will be done. It is in this instant that we see that God clearly is a provider. And he's gone from being God will provide to God has provided. It's really clear. If you look at this story and you look at this, you can see the correlations, right? That God says, Abraham's only son. God will only do, he will only ask you to do things that he will do himself. Amen. Do you see it? It's clear in the passage that this is a foreshadowing of Jesus Christ who's coming, the coming attraction to the real story. As the great American philosopher, Dwayne Johnson says, can you smell what I'm cooking this morning? I didn't think anybody would pick that up, but somebody did. What about Isaac in this story? What about Isaac? He's going with his dad. He shows his faith by submitting to his father, saying to himself, probably, we're going to have a sacrifice, dad. And he says in the passage, where is the ram? You ever been in a car with your parents and you're going somewhere you don't want to go to? How awkward is that conversation? Can you imagine the conversation between Abraham and Isaac that day? Isaac says, behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the, where is the lamb for the offering? Wait a minute, wait a minute, old man, something's going on. Something's not right. I see the wood. I see you got a knife there. I see you got everything. They're telling all these people to stay behind. It's just me and you. We don't have a ram. Wait a minute. Wait a minute, right? Abraham's answer is simple. God will provide. Isaac's question is one that we always ask. All of us ask this question. God, I see this, but what about this? I trust you, God, but I have questions. I believe, but help me with my unbelief. I see what you're saying, Lord, but I can't quite see what you're doing. Probably 2003 or 2004, 
I used to watch a lot of TV, and it was a commercial that always came on. It always made me laugh. It's a short commercial. Kids at a birthday party, like probably five or six kids at a birthday party, and they're celebrating, they're dancing, and it's an animated, it's an animated commercial. And there's a cookie in the middle of them laughing, and they're all dancing as a birthday party, and they're singing the songs, right? And they sing the birthday song, and, and the cookie asks the question. The cookie says, hey, where's the birthday cake? <laughs> and the little girl said, but we're not having cake. And the cookie, you can see his whole countenance change. Like, <laughs> what's about to happen? <laughs> Abraham and Isaac are walking. Isaac is carrying the wood on his back. He is to be sacrificed. Do you see the picture? He's carrying the wood on his back. He's carrying the wood on his back. He's going to be a sacrifice. Do you see the picture? This is another picture. Perhaps Abraham has passed down his faith enough to his son that he trusts God beyond this, that he's obedient. Abraham's faith probably makes Isaac less worried because he says, he says to the boys when he, when he leaves his servants behind, he says, we will come back. Amen. Verse 5. Then Abraham said to his young man, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. That's confidence. Amen. He has faith in something stronger than he ever, he, something stronger than anything. He's saying, we will be back. I want you to imagine an old hundred year old man trying to tie a boy down beyond his, if he didn't want to be tied down. He's a young man. You think he's going to sit there and let his old, old pops tie him down and sacrifice him? He's willing. He submits to the father. But I bet deep down in his heart he's saying, God, can you please provide? Amen. Some of us are saying that this morning. Yes. Lord, can you please provide? He will never let you down. He will always provide. The third person in this, in, in, this, in this family is Sarah. Nowhere in this passage, in this passage in chapter 22, is she, is she mentioned or her reaction to this story or her reaction to this request from God is never mentioned. It doesn't give us any indication of how she was feeling about this whole thing. Right? But I'll tell you this. She has seen God come through in the clutch before. In Genesis 18, God comes and tells Abraham, by this time next year, Abraham, you and Sarah will have a child. Abraham is 99, she's 90. Seems like a joke because the Bible says she laughed when God told them that they would have a child. She laughed. This is one of the funniest passages in the Bible. I was reading this morning, I was laughing this week, right? She laughed. And God asked Abraham, why is Sarah laughing? When he asked her, he said, why are you laughing? She said, no, I wasn't laughing. Read it in Genesis 18. You'll laugh too. She said, no, I wasn't laughing. And God said, no, but you did laugh. But you did laugh. Sarah is familiar with God coming through in what we call the clutch. She is, she is familiar with God doing the impossible. I can't imagine being, being Abraham having to tell my wife, that I'm taking our child to be sacrificed. 
God will provide. He always does. He always, always does. Amen. When I was a young man, back in Africa, when we were struggling, there was a song we used to sing. And I've sang that song here. Probably shouldn't sing it this morning. But it's a song that demonstrates the faith of a people when everything else is gone. Amen. It says, God will do it again. God will do it again. He heals the sick. He raised the dead. He has power to save. He'll never change. God has done a miracle, a miracle, and he will do it again. Then we start dancing. He will do it again. I'll stop. <laughs> we would sing that song every day at noon when we were in the Civil War with no idea where the next meal would come from. We sang that song. I'm almost in tears telling because I knew what it felt like on an empty stomach singing that song, waiting for a meal. Where's your faith? How is your faith? When everything is not in line perfectly, when God seems to be a mystery, are you willing to trust him? Jesus. Amen, Sherry. Are you ready to trust him? When was the last time you said, God, I don't know where you're going, but I trust you. But I trust you. I heard Nicole say that the other day. God, I don't know where you're going, but I trust you. All three of these people are being tested. The scripture tells us that obedience is better than sacrifice. Right? Let's get to the questions in the passage. Oh, man. All right. Let's get to the questions in the passage. God tests and tempts. Why? Why does God test us? What are the nature of God's tests and trials? How many of you know that God tests us? In the old King James version, it's that God tempts. God, I think the old King James, the context of the word tempt, and when they wrote that, was not the same context we have today. Because when we think temptation today, we think, we think things that, that bring us to help us fail, right? God is testing. I think that the English version, the ESV version, gets it right here. It's a test, right? This story, in short, God does test us, right, is a test, if you don't believe me, read verse 1. After these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, he said, here I am. This story is a test of Abraham's faith. Let's work on the word temp, tempt or test. Like I said, it's really hard to put it into modern English, but it's not a temptation, it's a test. Because the book, the book, the book of James says this, let no one say when he is tempted that I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Make no mistake, all of us, our faith will be tested. All of us. Maybe not on the level of Abraham, but you will be tested at some point. Right? We want to see how deep your roots are, where they are connected. Sometimes we confuse the Lord disciplining us with temptation. The Lord does discipline. He disciplines those he loves. He chastises every son, Hebrews chapter 12. So Abraham is being tested because he is a child of God. God knows Abraham and trusts him. God had spoken to Abraham before, and he has gone down a similar road. God knows. Abraham knows. God told him to leave everything, and he did. Abraham is a clear example of someone who has truly surrendered to God and is living by faith, willing to risk it all and trusting the Lord to provide. I don't know if you've been there. If you've been there, say amen. 
Has your faith ever been tested? Have your idols ever been shaken? The things that you, the things that you make that take the place of God, have they ever been tested? When he says to take your only son whom you love and offer him here, that's the test. God, this is my only son. You mean to tell me I need to give up my only son? Here's the thing. I always tell you this. God doesn't ask us to do things that he would not do. If you read your Bible, you know that his only begotten son is in John 3.16 that he gave so that you can sit here today. God made a promise to Abraham, and he was, he, he was going to keep that promise. He made a promise in Genesis 12 and in Genesis 15. See, God's tests are different. When I was a teacher and I gave tests, that was my day to chill, right? The kids are taking a test. I can relax. Any test that we take in school, the teacher, is, the teacher is not really on trial, right? You are on trial. God doesn't just sit back and watch. He is also in the test with you. He is proving himself faithful. When God makes a promise to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, in true near, ancient Near Eastern tradition, he says to Abraham, when Abraham falls asleep and he splits the animal, he says, this, what I just did to this animal should happen to me if I don't keep my end of the bargain in this covenant. God keeps his promise to Abraham that he is a provider. God's faithfulness is also on trial here. Right? When God tests us, He's going to show you that he's faithful also. So it's not a test just for you. It's to show his faithfulness as well. So why would God ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son? Is there a lack of love on God's part, on Abraham's part? God knows that Abraham loves his son. I'm going to go through this kind of slowly so we can get this because this is, this is an apologetic point, right? This is a point that needs to be fleshed out so that you can remove the doubt from yourself that God is this evil God, that God is the old God of the Old Testament is this uncaring God, which is not true. One, why would God let Abraham sacrifice his own son or ask Abraham to sacrifice his own son? If you study ancient Near Eastern culture in that time, child sacrifice was very common. Child sacrifice in that culture was very common. Abraham lived within a pagan culture it was almost exclusively, believe it or not, practiced with newborns or, newborns or infants. People did this. People sacrificed their children to deities because when natural disasters and things like that would happen and they wanted those things to stop, they sacrificed their children to prevent, to, to, to deity to say, God, here, the God of the sun, the God of famine, I'm going to give my child so I can get good fortune. They did it to appease an angry deity, an angry God that they had made. God doesn't condone that. This practice of child sacrifice was often associated with idolatry. People sacrificed their kids from idols. You see it all over history. It's actually countercultural for God to prohibit Abraham from sacrificing his son. Even though the culture that surrounded him at this point was a culture of child sacrifice. If you don't believe me, I want you to write these verses down. Leviticus 18.21, God gives a command to his people. He says, do not permit any of your children to be offered as a sacrifice to Molech. You must not bring shame to the name of your God. I am God. 
Deuteronomy 12, 31. You must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nation worship their gods. For they perform for their gods every detestable act the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and, sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. Deuteronomy 18. For example, never sacrifice your son or daughter as a burnt offering. And do not let your people practice fortune-telling or use sorcery or interpret or witchcraft. Amen. He says that God does not condone child sacrifices. Somewhere in Abraham's heart, he has that confidence. He wouldn't have, he wouldn't have done this if he didn't know. He either thought, I'm going to take this, God's going to provide something, or if my son dies, if I kill him, God's going to raise him for the dead. God would not accept children's sacrifices. In verse 5, Verse 5 says, when, when, when Abraham says, I will come back to God, I, he left the boys and he says, I will come back. We live in a society today that is very pluralistic. By pluralistic, I mean there is a myriad of things that you can believe in. And that should not, that should not be a place where you get afraid to exist in a pluralistic society. Meaning, you can, people have this God, this God, this religion, this religion. It's everywhere, especially in the city. It's pluralistic to a point of confusion, right? But nowadays, I see people, or I talk to people, where they're, they're shaping gods for themselves. Amen. They're making a God for themselves. It's like, oh, yeah, I like some of this. I'll take some of that. I like some of this religion. I'll take some of that. I like some of this. And you're making your own God. Christians need not be afraid to face those questions in a pluralistic, pluralistic society. Here's why. Because biblically, in the old and the new, those societies were pluralistic. So in America, where it seems as though Christian culture has always been the dominant culture, so we don't have to try, we don't have to understand, it seems like we don't read, we don't, we don't, we don't pay attention to the word. We get afraid when people ask us questions about God, sacrificing, so what would what, I do with that? This is some of the stories that people will say, I can't believe in God because he told, Isaac, he told Abraham to sacrifice his son. People walk away from the faith because of stories like this. Don't. There are answers. You have to understand culture. You have to read your Bible. Now I lost my place. Religious pluralism is not new. We ought to be ready. We've been the majority for so long that we, we, we've gotten lax. We want to read their Bibles. These stories can hurt where they lead to accusations that God is terrible. The Bible is this. The Old Testament is that. Everything is disconnected. Without proper understanding of the culture and the historical context, you will read this story and have questions and doubts. Right? It's clear. God does not condone child sacrifices. By the way, by the way, we sacrifice our children in this culture too. I was waiting for the amen. I'm glad I heard it. In this culture, we don't do it in the ways we think that they did back then, but we do it. It takes countercultural living to not sacrifice your kids in this culture. People sacrifice their kids in this culture for success. Amen. People sacrifice their kids in this culture for other relationships. Amen. 
people who sacrifice their kids for scholarships, athletic dreams, for our personal careers, our advancements, for our entertainment. I worked at a summer camp years ago. One of, my, one of the young kids at the camp, I hate to be the one to, to, to have told him this, but both his parents were well off, doing great things. This camp, $15,000 for one kid to come for seven weeks. So it was, it was an expensive place to be. But I remember him saying, I go to boarding school during the year. And during the summer, my parents sent me here for eight weeks. All summer. Because they don't have the time. That's sacrificial, folks. I was talking to Jeff this week about this. And he was saying to me, he said, people sacrifice their kids for drugs. Amen. He said he was talking to a lady, and a lady gave him a quote. She said, I gave up my kids and kept my drugs. I would have rather kept my kids and gave up my drugs. Jim Elliott, missionary who went to South America and was killed, for, were killed by the people who he was sharing his faith with, said this. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. I'm going to repeat it so you get it. He is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Everything in this world that you're holding on so tight to, you will lose at some point. Amen. The only thing you will not lose is Jesus Christ. Amen. Abraham, in this story, was willing to give up what he could not keep to gain what he could never lose. I want you to think about this. What if Abraham had failed the test that God gave? What would that look like if Abraham failed that test? If Abraham failed that test, he would have refused to, to, to sacrifice his son so Isaac doesn't die, right? But if Abraham passes the test, Isaac still doesn't die. It's a win-win. God proves his faithfulness if Abraham passes the test, if Abraham decides, I don't want to go through this and I'm going to fail this test, Isaac stays alive. So there's no intention for Isaac to die. So how is this connected to Jesus? I hope you've seen some connections already. I hope you've seen some. How is this a foreshadowing of Jesus coming? So many of us can see it just a little bit more clearly. So you can see the Old Testament just a little bit more clearly. I'm going to go into a couple things, and I'm going to keep going. In verse 13, it says there, actually in several different places in the passage, it says, Abraham lifted up his eyes. He lifted, his, he lifted up his eyes. The first time he lifted up his eyes in this passage he is looking to the new land. He's telling the boys to stop, and he's looking ahead when he lifted up his eyes. Every time this phrase, lifted up his eyes, is used, Abraham is looking into the distance. In Genesis 18, when the angels appear to Abraham and tell him he's going he's to have a child, it said that again. It said he lifted up his eyes. He's looking at something that he can't believe. He's not merely looking from here to here. He's looking from here to up. It didn't say he looked up, right? In Hebrew, it says he lifted up his eyes. Here's why this is important. When it says the ram is caught in a thicket, and it said Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked back. Thicket is a word that we don't use nowadays, right? Thicket. 
in the Hebrew is talking about a, not, a, not a shrubbery. The ram is not caught in shrubbery. It's actually caught on small trees. You guys got quiet on me. Maybe I'm going too nerdy on you, but I want you to hear me. The ram is caught by his horns on small trees that Abraham has to turn around and look up at it. It is hanging on a tree. You picking up what I'm saying? The tree of the thicket. In ancient Hebrew culture, whenever someone hung from a tree, it was an undignified death. Here is a ram, innocent, but yet is going to have an undignified death from a small tree. Deuteronomy chapter 21 says, Cursed is anyone that hangs on a tree. In Hebrew culture, anyone who died hanging was symbolically, was symbolically cursed. Jason had a ram here the other day, and that ram, we put all our sins on that ram and it was taken out. All throughout the Old Testament, if you read and follow that, anyone who died outside of a city was killed outside of a city and was hung on a tree. The only people that, were, that was done to were criminals. I want you to think of Esther in the story of Haman. He was hung. And, and it says the king's wrath was abated because he was hung. I want you to think of David's son Absalom who tried to usurp the kingdom. And he was caught on a branch of oak. He was hanging from a tree in an undignified death. In the book of Joshua, chapter 8 and 10, defeated kings, all these defeated kings were hung from trees, undignified, disgraced. So when Pilate, when Pilate brings Jesus out before the crowd of religious leaders who knew the Old Testament, and they scream, crucify him, they knew what it meant. It wasn't just capital punishment. It was an undignified death that they're going to give to Jesus, and he was going to hang on something. They were trying to dethrone him. They were trying to undignify him, to strip him, to treat him like a cursed criminal. He had tried to ascend to the, to the throne like Absalom, but we're going to treat him like a criminal, they were saying. He is not our king, they were saying. When he was made to carry his own cross outside of the city, right, they had no idea what they were doing, right? Coincidentally, the same area and the same hills that Jesus was crucified on was around the same place that Abraham led Isaac up, the land of Moriah. God is providing what he promised. See, the ram is a substitute for Isaac as Jesus is a substitute for us. The ram is used as an offering for the atonement of sins. And they did that regularly. Jesus' death on the cross is the atonement for the rest of history for all of our sin. Every place in the Bible you will see that Christ is shown as being the one that will provide for our sins. God will provide. I'll close with this. In the old days, I had an auntie who used to come spend the weekend with us, and she drank more beer than anybody else. But she knew, she knew the word. She would always say, man, I got a ram in a thicket this week. God provided a ram in a thicket. And I never understood what she was saying. A ram in a thicket, a ram in a thicket, a ram in a thicket. Because biblical, biblical literacy has gone out, you don't hear that term anymore. You might hear, hear that term at Thanksgiving from your old aunt. God provided a ram in a thicket. Here's what that means. At the last minute, 
until I, had, I didn't have any other choices, God provided something. You ever hear the name Jehovah Jireh? God, God is the provider. That's one of God's names, right? He's providing the ram in the thicket. In dire circumstances, pray to your Jehovah Jireh that God will provide. Right? Seemingly, at the last minute, God provides. If you've seen it in your life, encourage one of your neighbors this morning and said, Jehovah Jireh, God will provide. Amen. If you're leaving here today, if you're walking out of here today thinking, I need more faith. I want to be like Abraham. I want to have more faith. Right? Let me warn you that you are putting the cart before the horse, Americans would say. You are putting the result before the action. Right? What you should be leaving here thinking or saying this morning is that I need more Jesus. Amen. Amen. Strong faith. Strong faith in a weak branch will leave you, will leave you nowhere, will lead you nowhere. Right? A little faith in a strong Jesus yes. will get you somewhere. Hallelujah. I'm going to say that again. You can have strong faith, but if the faith that you have is in something weak, you're leaning on a broken stick. Amen. A little faith. Jesus says, the faith of a mustard seed right. in me, the object of your faith, mm. is what you need. Thank you, Jesus. God is good. Yes, he has provided, and he will provide. You, By your heads. Thank you, Father God, for the word. Thank you. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for what you've done in all of our lives. We submit to you as our provider, as our king. We pray that you walk with us this week and you help us to see our clear ram in the thicket. You are our Jehovah Jireh, the God that provides. We trust you, Lord. We honor you. We love you, Lord. If you are here this morning and this message struck a chord, pierced your heart, after the service, we will have the prayer team here if you need somebody to pray. Don't walk out of here without praying if God is prompting you to do just that. You are King of kings and Lord of the Lord Jesus, and we bow down before you. Amen.